Lieutenant General John A. Jensen is the director of the Army National Guard. He guides the formation, development, and implementation of programs and policies affecting the Army National Guard, a force of nearly 335,000 soldiers in 50 states, three territories, and the District of Columbia. In this conversation, Washington's Assistant Adjutant General, Brigadier General Paul Sellers, joins me in talking with Lieutenant General Jensen about generational readiness, how the National Guard is an integrated reserve, and why he thinks you should read what you find interesting. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have two very special guests on today. I have the the new uh, ATAG, General uh, Paul Sellers uh, from Washington State, and I'm going to uh, introduce him and then let him introduce our, our other special guest. So it's to you, sir. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Chaplain. Uh, appreciate you uh, inviting us to come on here. Sure. Again, I'm General Paul Sellers, um, the brand new uh, ATAG for Washington. I'm happy to be uh, in this new position. I'm very happy to have our, our guest here on the on the podcast, General uh, Jensen, uh, the director of the Army National Guard. Sir, I'll just uh, take a moment to, to thank you for taking the time, the time and the opportunity to do this. It means a lot for us and our soldiers to hear from the highest ranks within the National Guard. And that helps us to kind of get motivated and, and, and stay excited about the direction that we're heading in as a guard. So I appreciate your time and being here. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. It's uh, really my honor, my privilege to be here and 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 joining this uh, great podcast. You know, I've I've seen that you've had uh, you know, for example, uh, General Retired McChrystal on. So I, I, I you know, I, I apologize that you had to step down to my level, uh, but uh, but I, you know, I look forward to the discussion here. Yeah. Well, sir, I guess to get us kicked off, um, we understand uh, that we're supposed to be an integrated reserve, but a lot of our guys don't really understand the, the complexities and, the, and the, the vastness of like what that means. So can you kind of put a head on this and kind of just educate us on what being an integrated reserve is? Yeah, I think that goes uh, goes to this you know challenge that we have in terms of uh, describing how we how we truly fit in and contribute to the army. And so. If you step back in history before 9-11, you know, we talked about the Army National Guard being a strategic reserve, meaning that we really were only going to be used, you know, in case of World War III, for example. And we were funded that way. We are equipped that way. Uh, and, and with some rare exceptions, uh, we weren't really looked to contribute to the big Army team unless catastrophe hit World War III. Then after 9-11, you know, we really entered this phase where we came, became more of an operational reserve or were an operational reserve, meaning that, uh, you know, in part because we had a, a war that lasted over, over 20 years, you know, we were contributing to, uh, to the total army and to the joint force, you know, on a, on a daily basis across all operations across the, across the globe. And so as we, you know, as we left Iraq, as we left Afghanistan, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, is the Army National Guard going to return back to becoming a strategic reserve? And, and, and I found that, you know, personally, those two terms didn't really describe what we were doing. Uh, and so we were looking for a term that better described our current role inside of the Army, as well as uh, a term that better describes how we contribute to the Army when we're in Congress. The fear is if we if we declare the Army National Guard is being returned back to a strategic reserve role, uh, that has resource implications, meaning resources being cut. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, if you look at the, the Army National Guard since 9-11, we've been both a strategic reserve and an operational reserve simultaneously. So if you're doing both of those missions simultaneously, there's got to be a better term uh, to describe that. And, and I landed on integrated reserve because I think that's where we are as an Army Guard. And here's my example that I like to use. 
when General McConville was the chief of staff of the army, he had an army guard officer that was part of his legislative liaison team that was in his office. So at the highest level, United States Army, there was Army National Guard representation. You go down to a basic training company or an AIT company, and there's Army National Guard representation there as well. So we are at every echelon of the Army, from the Chief of Staff of the Army, all the way down to initial entry training. You look at every Army headquarters uh, throughout the world, there is an Army Guardsman, uh, at least one, sitting in every one. And so what I was trying to describe really was how is it that the Army Guard is contributing to the total Army as part of the Joint Force? And I think integrated reserve better describes that than strategic reserve or operational reserve. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's been uh, my experience as well. We actually interviewed a, the uh, the SIA proponent commander. And in that interview, he had a, a, a National Guardsman that works right there with him. And he wasn't there just to try to represent the Guard because he was talking to a Guard unit. But it was like he was like a, a representative on, you know, an OTOT there working with them so that's uh it was pretty pretty cool to see how uh intertwined we are whenever the kind of the the old mentality is that like the guard sits over here and then the rest of the army does army things so, so it very much seems to be exactly what you're describing sir yeah and we and we're decades away from that and i think when you when you talk to the senior army leadership now that's what they've experienced through most of their career as well is that the army national guard uh, is a contributor and a partner. And in many times, you know, it used to be, well, you know, this Army Guard formation is going to work for this active duty formation. But, but we have flipped that and, and, and we have, you know, active component formations that have worked for Army National Guard formations. You know, I'll just use my personal example. Uh, in 2009, 2010, I deployed as the Division G3 for the 34th Infantry Division. Uh, we were responsible for an area of operations from Baghdad all the way to Kuwait and from the east border to the west border. Almost, almost the entirety of our uh, subordinate brigades were all active duty brigades. Uh, and so I think that is, uh, you know, that's just an example of what we became and kind of what the Army expects uh, from us right now. Right. That makes sense. Uh, and like we had this kind of a similar experience with Poland that like we had we had uh, active duty attached, you know, a, attachments to us, but we were the, the flagpole like uh, our, you know, my battalion commander like ran that uh, that battle group. Uh, yep. So it, it seems to be uh, kind of like a, the growing trend for uh, for sure. But that yeah, I, I think where we're at as an army, right, because, uh, you know, our army's not getting bigger. But the demands on the army aren't going down either. So you have from an act from a compo one and AC perspective, you know, if supply is going down and demand is staying the same or increasing, the only way you can fill that gap is through the reserve component, both the Army Reserve and the Army National Guard. Right. That, that makes a, a lot of sense. So but it, it kind of begs another question is that that if all of a sudden um, we're going to be like asked to, to fill in a kind of like the combo one role. How do we also simultaneously uh, maintain the our role a, as a domestic force and be ready to react to the river flooding or, or whatever? So what's the kind of path forward there? So, you know, quite frankly, from from my point of point of view is that there's no separation between those two missions. If you can do the most complex mission, which is large scale combat operations, right? If you can train a force to do that, if you can employ a force to do that, if you can execute the missions associated with that, that is the most complex type of mission that an army formation could be asked to do. You can do anything less than that. And, and again, my personal example, I've got multiple personal examples, but my most recent one as the adjutant general of the Minnesota National Guard, when we responded to the violence after George Floyd's murder, um, you know, that was, that was not a, you know, ultimately seven, over 7,000 soldiers responded to that mission. That was not a direct mission that 7,000 soldiers had trained for. Sure, our ready reaction force, our quick reaction force have been trained for civil disturbance, but because of that, because of that uh, combat experience, because of that, uh, um, that, that opportunity to develop leaders in very complex environments, uh, 
we're very quickly able to respond to a different scenario and did so with great discipline, uh, with great leadership, uh, and, 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 and ultimately helped the state of Minnesota, you know, peacefully uh, end, end that episode. Yeah, that and that definitely uh, strikes home for us as well. I mean, like we had it kind of flipped around. So uh, we deployed uh, my battalion actually deployed to uh, the George Floyd riots in uh, in Seattle, and uh, we went from being a a group of people that were kind of stood up to to take on an NTC rotation, then a federal mission. Then all of a sudden, this gets thrust on us, and it's kind of trial by fire. And a lot of the relationships and a lot of the uh, I guess uh, cultural norms inside the organization then went on to an NTC rotation and then went on to a federal mission. And so you know, I've never heard it quite put that way, but I th that actually makes a lot of sense uh, of what you're saying. Yeah. And so, you know, take, you know, looking at it, you know, as you laid out, looking at it from the domestic piece, right. We all understand that relationships are important. And, and, and early in the early 2000s, uh, we started having, uh, Army National Guard formations go to uh, Bosnia to support S4. And one of the things that I saw as it relates to our formation is we were, we were used to developing relationships with, uh, with, with government agencies and, and government officials. And so I thought we did really well in, in, in that environment uh, because we had a lot of experience uh, in that environment. And quite frankly, no matter where you go, what you do uh, as it relates to the Army uh, and, and operations in the Army, a lot of your success is going to be based on your ability to develop relationships and develop those relationships very quickly. Whether that's a multinational force that might be on your flank or whether that is a uh, indigenous uh, government uh, in a city or a province or in a country, you know, we, we get to experience that every day uh, as part of our traditional National Guard experience. Uh, and, and I think it's a great, great strength of the Army National Guard. Yeah, I think it's a really good po point, sir, because, uh, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say we really, and I've been National Guard my whole career for 31 years now, and we really kind of are, I see us as a Swiss Army knife. We really are a multi-tool, um, that can can adapt quickly to those types of environments because of the unique skill sets that everyone brings to the table. But it does sort of bring an interesting question as we look forward, when you look at uh, the integrated uh, and transactional readiness and, and you know the readiness question moving forward is going to be interesting because we've had these habitual relationships relationships with the active component and they've seen our level of performance. But how do we maintain that in like a constrained fiscal environments or when you're looking at, you know, force structure cuts and all that kind of stuff? How do you, how do we re make sure that they understand if you want $10 worth of readiness, you got to give us $10. If you give us $9 worth of readiness, you get $9 worth of readiness. So that's the tricky part as we look forward. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the challenge going forward is that we do, you know, pre-planned uh, deployments, gift map, if you will, you know, those are, those are laid out well in advance. We know who's going where, when they're going, what we're going to need to do that. And, and that gets to that transactional readiness piece that, that, that I talk about in that we create that readiness just so we can go expend it in a given period of time. So let's just say uh, we create that readiness really for a two-year period of time. You know, we create it, we deploy it, it comes back home, then we start all over. Uh, but for those formations that are not a part of that, we have to create a more generational approach to readiness in the sense that I'm creating this readiness for an unknown event at an unknown time. So whether that's contingency readiness, whether that's generational readiness, uh, however you want to phrase that, uh, we, we also, we haven't been considering that aspect of uh, the readiness spectrum for 20 years over 20 years, we've been very focused on preparing the next unit for their next deployment. And if you weren't the next unit on the next deployment, you were kind of pushed off to the side, you weren't funded very well, you weren't resourced very well, and you didn't get a lot of attention. We can't operate that way going in the future. Yes, we're gonna to have to continue to, to, to create unit readiness as it relates to the gift map, 
because as I said, uh, the demand on the Army is not going down. So we're going to remain in OIR. We're going to remain OSS. We're going to continue to do MFO. We're going to continue to do K4. But, but that can't be the entirety uh, of our experience. We have to simultaneously create the skills to do large-scale combat operations. And, and, if, and if you believe in my theory that if you can do the most complex mission, you can do a simpler mission, it's the same way here. Prepare for large-scale large combat operations. That will allow you to do a peacekeeping operation, a peace enforcement uh, mission, uh, a humanitarian assistance mission, any other mission short of large-scale combat uh, operations. It makes a lot of sense, sir. So it's like if you look at um, com combat being the most complicated thing that you could ever possibly be asked to do, then being able to scale down and, and like kind of modularly take those skill sets and apply them to like a less complicated environment should be very uh, a very simple task. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the environment, you know, dictates that as well. Because you know, hey, let's just look at let's just look at COVID. Uh, Responding to a pandemic was not on anybody's mission essential task list, right? Nobody trained for responding to uh, a pandemic. Uh, and, and the array of tasks that the National Guard, the Army National Guard, was asked to respond to across the 50 states, three territories, and, and the district were incredibly diverse, incredibly dynamic, and, and, and not the same uh, uh, across that. But what it allowed us to do, right, our, our previous experience is that we know how to organize uh, for an emergency. We have an established chain of command. We have SOPs, we have procedures. We know, we know how to, uh, to operate inside uh, formations, whether that's a platoon, a company, or you know, uh, a brigade, or in the case of many places, you know, the entire state responding to uh, in an emergency. And, and my, my personal professional belief is that, you know, 20 years of, of, of GWAT uh, had prepared everyone's state National Guard to respond to that. Uh, so we got a great example here from Washington when it, you know, we don't, just like a pandemic isn't on our metal task list, neither is food bank support. Yeah. We distributed you know, millions of pounds of food, the leadership that we put in charge and the hierarchy that we set up like we do for any mission, they were our logistics support personnel. They were able to assess the, these food bank operations and they actually helped them streamline and they changed the way they do business today based on the experience they had with the National Guard during the, the food bank operations. Yeah. yeah, our experience was the same in Minnesota. We had uh, the, the PPE warehouse, the uh, the, the, the state of Minnesota warehouse that wasn't manned, didn't have the experience to really do what we needed them to do during COVID. So we went up to Camp Ripley where our, 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 our J4 uh, logistics hub was, and, and we brought in those logisticians that came in and, and very quickly turned around uh, the, the effectiveness of that warehouse and the efficiency of that warehouse. And, uh, you know, and it was, it was, was based off years and years and years of uh, military experience, planning for and executing uh, operations. There you go. Yeah, we, uh, working it, so like I, I, you know, had a formation of a stretch out across all of this. And uh, so I would go and do different, you know, site visits that, you know, just basically in battlefield circulation. And uh, I remember our biggest food bank warehouse, uh, they were struggling with the same kind of thing. They had like also they had the surge in manpower, but they didn't have like the their supply like line kind of organized in the way they could get it out. And so we grabbed two of our, our uh, logisticians and put them in there who also kind of brought a civilian, uh, uh, you know, logistical skill set as well. They did time studies on all, all of the uh all the guys that are working and next thing you know the uh, food the, the food distribution production went through the roof it was uh, it went from being a very 
Like I would go down there and visit one day and they were like, you know, towards the beginning and they were done by like 10 o'clock and they were just like, well, we're, we ran out of rice because uh, that was primarily what they were moving. By the time it was done and over with, that thing was running like an Amazon warehouse. I mean, it was just constantly going and they were, they were considered an, uh, multiple shifts, but then they had met the demand of the public to where they didn't have anywhere to send the rice to, even if they did. So it was kind of interesting to see that skill set being employed that way. Yeah, and I think in our National Guard or, you know, let's just say our reserve component, regardless of which service, but our reserve component allows for that meshing of civilian acquired skill and, and, and military experience to come in uh, and, 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 you know, mesh into a better way of doing, doing business. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. So, uh, so um, you talk about generational readiness. I, I really want to kind of get on that. Can you just give us uh, kind of like your overview of what that is, and then we can kind of like dive down the rabbit hole? Yeah, so uh, so this is how I try to explain generational readiness. And I'll go back to uh, the missions that we uh, prepare for uh, versus the missions that we may be asked to do. And and this is not a, a slight on, on, you know, any soldier uh, that that mobilized and deployed as part of GWAT. You know, I, I, I was one of those soldiers as well. And this is not a slight uh, on, their, on their sacrifice, on their contribution. But my example is this, we took field artillery battalions and, and, and really in about 60 to 75 days, you could take a field artillery battalion and make them a great uh, security battalion. Right, they could lead convoys across some of the most dangerous uh, roads in Iraq. You know, they could secure uh, installations in in Afghanistan and, and all over. So those skills were you could acquire those very uh, very quickly and be uh, a very effective force uh, in any environment. But you can't flip that around. You can't take a security force battalion and in, in and in sixty days they become a great field artillery battalion. Sure, they might be able to load ammunition and pull a lanyard, but that, that coordination and that synchronization of fires uh, as part of a fires plan, as part of a shaping operation, uh, as part of a joint uh, military operation, that you can't create that in 60 days. That takes uh, turn after turn after turn, repetition after repetition after repetition. It takes privates growing up to be NCOs. It takes second lieutenants growing into uh, field grade officers uh, where they learn these, you know, what I'll just call generational skills. Uh, we didn't need necessarily generational skills to become security battalions in Iraq or in Afghanistan or to learn how to, to guard a, 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 an installation. But if you flip that around, whether, you know, let's take another very complex uh, operation, let's take uh, an air assault, right? Sure, in, in, in Iraq, you flew your U-860, but you didn't do an air assault. There's a huge difference between those two operations, especially if you're going to do that operation in a contested airspace, right, at night, uh, in bad weather. Uh, that, that's not something you can just learn, you know, in 30 days at a mobilization site. That's going to take careers to learn and uh, SOPs and procedures and TTPs to be developed and passed on and modified as equipment changes, as the environment changes. Uh, so that's why, you know, I, you know, I, my focus right now is how can we create that generational readiness in as short a period of time as possible? Because we don't know when we're going to go asked to do something very hard on behalf of our nation as part of the total army, as part of the uh, the joint force. Yeah, I, I guess the the guard would somewhat, since we're a community based <clears throat> force, and you don't you will have guys that will. I mean, like we have a battalion commander in the eighty first who was he he literally showed up as a private. Now he's the battalion commander uh, of the same unit. Um, so like we kind of have like a a, a unique. Uh, what's the right word, a, a unique uh, aptitude for developing that sort of generational readiness that like whenever you learn the SOP at 2 to the 146, that becomes like the two, the same SOP that you work on as an NCO, as a junior grade officer, and then eventually at, at you're still perfecting it as a battalion commander. So uh, yeah, that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. That's why the combat training center rotations are so important to the Army National Guard, because 
those really become generational uh, events for you. Uh, and so, you know, I'll just use my example. So I've, you know, I've been a guardsman for 40 years now. I've gone to this, I, I went to the National Training Center one time as a company commander. Uh, now, while that had an impact on me later in my career, I, I would have been a better battalion commander if I'd had more than one rotation at NTC. I would have been a better brigade commander had I been a battalion commander at NTC. I would have been a better division commander had I had a brigade uh, rotation. And so it's it's this idea that 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 you know all of these things build upon themselves and as as soldiers turn into leaders and then become senior leaders, they draw on all of those experiences. And so the more experience uh, that we can give them uh, as it relates to complex uh, training events, the better that they will be uh, as, as leaders and as such can better develop their subordinate leaders uh, to prepare, prepare them to take over someday. But that's kind of like uh, to to relate it back to kind of the, the first the way we got started that the you're kind of building a, a certain efficiency so that way you get more bang for your buck with the guard so like if where if you look at it in the kind of traditional sense that we're just a strategic reserve we're just on the shelf then you have none of that generational readiness whatsoever you have to put a lot into it but you're gonna have a high cost in combat whenever they actually get employed but then whenever you if you look at it like with if you were to make them a operational reserve then you just run them in the dirt and then they can't really do anything. But if you take that integrated approach to where it's like, we're going to kind of like sit here in the middle, give these guys this experience, put them back on the shelf, take them off the shelf, but give them experience. Then whenever it comes time to to put them on, you know, the the, the battlefield, they really are more well-equipped than either one of the other two options. Is that kind of hearing you right? Right. So, you know, you know, all you have to do is look at the, the war in Ukraine right now as an example of that. You know, you can put a unit on the battlefield, and I'm talking about uh, the Russian army right now, you can put a, a, a unit on the battlefield that is even fully equipped, uh, maybe fully manned, but if it's not fully trained, they won't survive the modern battlefield. It's too lethal. So you have to be, you have to be manned first, right? Because it'll, you know, you can't train a vacancy, you can't deploy a vacancy. So this gets to, you know, why is end strength so important because a unit at 100% strength is more effective than a unit at 85% strength. So the second piece is, you know, as we move, as the Army moves through modernization, we, we need to make sure that we have the most modern equipment available. Uh, and then you got to take that man equipped force and you have to give them a training experience uh, a mul of multiple turns so they can effectively employ their, their people and effectively employ their equipment as part of a larger team. Uh, and, and anything short of that uh, is catastrophic uh, on the battlefield. And all we have to do is look to the current current example in Ukraine. That makes a lot of sense, sir. It, like, uh, it's my understanding that like, uh, if you look at the, the Russian army, they're, they're kind of like their 82nd, their 101st, their kind of premier organizations were so like heavily attrited earlier on that then whenever they started employing the reserve forces, that's who, who did the kind of the longer uh, you know stint of the fighting. And so they kind of, you know, if you look at that, like a, as a mental model going forward, then like that means that like there's, we have a, a kind of a heavy burden to bear in any kind of potential conflict that's coming up because that will be us. Is, am I, is that a kind of a decent analysis? Yeah. So here, here's what I'll say. And, and I'll talk about the Army Guard because it's the formation I'm most uh, familiar with, you know, being a lifelong Army Guardsman is, is that one of the asymmetric advantages the United States Army has is its reserve component. When you look at what the Army asks, both the Army Reserve, but more specifically the Army Guard, when you look at what the United States Army asks our Army National Guard to do, it's unlike any other reserve component anywhere in the world, right? There, no one else, is, no one else has a contingency to put an a reserve component division in the field, a reserve component brigade uh, in the field, take an active component brigade and put it underneath the reserve component division. There's no other army in the world that's organized this way, that relies on its reserve component the way that the United States Army does. Uh, and, and, and as a 
as a result, we have greater endurance and greater strategic depth than other armies. I say this, the reserve component provides the endurance piece to the United States Army. Sure, we can respond with 1st Brigade at the 82nd Airborne Division anywhere in the world in a very short period of time, but what's next and what's next and what's next, right? That's where, that's where our reserve component, specifically our Army National Guard, uh, I believe provides our Army with an asymmetric advantage over our 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 competitors and our enemies. Right. So like, I guess the way, the way you kind of like envision the national guard division to be employed in the fight is more of a, um, like, whereas the 82nd would, would be like kind of your cutting edge premier force to, to attack. We bring time. Like we just buy time to, to let the fight continue until, until we can kind of secure a, a you know, a, an advantage or, or, or a victory. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, and, and what we're seeing with uh, the modernization efforts from the Army that really started under General uh, McCombo when he was the Chief of Staff of the Army, and, and while we don't have a current sitting Chief of Staff of the Army right now, you know, the plan really hasn't changed, is that the Army recognizes that that the, the Army National Guard needs to modernize along with the active component because of the reliance on our, our reserve component that we can't do the AC first and then, you know, in time get to the reserve component because part of this part of this depth is gonna come from the reserve component. So whether that, you know, our armor brigade combat teams, infantry brigade combat teams, aviation formations, whatever they are, sure, we're not gonna be the first unit in line, right? That's gonna be somebody else, but we are very close to the front of the line uh, to ensure that, uh, that we're part of that. Right. So how do we, um, in, in looking at us as an integrated reserve, leveraging general readiness, how do we like prepare for, uh, for that eventuality where we're, we're going to be employed in the Alisco fight with, with that kind of mission set or mindset? Um, like what's some kind of like, a things that we can look for or look to do to better prepare ourselves for that. Yeah, you know, I th the the first one was really initiated by uh, General Hokinson when he was the director of the Army National Guard, where we we went to a division alignment, you know, we'll use the, the 81st uh, Brigade here, you know, a non-divisional unit, uh, you know, kind of outside of that relationship uh, for a long time. Now, we've now we brought them back under a division because that's how the army sees itself. That's how it's going to fight. And so, you know, we took, quite frankly, we took when we, you know, previous to that, when we talked about divisions, we were really just talking about division headquarters, right? Uh, with a few exceptions, nobody was really organized underneath the division headquarters. There, there are a few, you know, again, my example uh, in Minnesota, the 34th Combat Aviation Brigade and 1st Brigade of the 34th, because they were Minnesota units, they've always been up underneath the 34th. But anyway, we expanded that to account for all of our units that normally are organized underneath the division. So that was, that was step one. So it allows us to see ourselves differently. Uh, and, and not that I would ever propose that hey, we're going to rip off the 81st uh, Brigade patch and, and, and force you to wear a division patch. We don't need to do that, right? Your heritage, your lineage, your traditions are incredibly important, but you can be part of a higher headquarters, call it a division, and still wear that patch and still be part of that other team. So that was kind of step one. Now step two, what we're looking at is now we need to take our, our, our eight divisions, and I, and I love when it's simple math, we need to take our eight divisions and align them underneath the four corps that we have in the United States Army, 1st, 3rd, 5th, and 18th Airborne Corps. Wow, that works out perfect, two per, per corps, because now what that allows, uh, what really lacks right now is, you know, who's the, who's the trainer and mentor of a division commander in a National Guard division, right? So I was a TAG and I was a division commander, and I can tell you the adjutant general is not in a place to really be the trainer and mentor to a division commander. You need, you need a, a, a fellow green tab commander war fighting headquarters. Uh, but then we also have other formations that are 
that are core and theater army formations that we also need to align underneath cores. And in a perfect world, what it gets us to is uh, all of our formations are aligned a division underneath a division or aligned uh, underneath a, a core. And we begin training together. We begin operating on the same uh, SOPs, the same tactical SOPs. And, and we create, if you will, let's go back to the domestic operations, right? We want to know who all the um, uh, uh, emergency response leaders are in our state. We don't want to meet them, you know, the day after a horrible event. Well, it's the same thing in the Army. You know, we want division commanders and division staffs to have relationships with core staffs because if and when that happens, those relationships are already established. And, 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 and as a result, on day one, uh, you can be more effective because you've already done that, that, that initial relationship building. I understand your tactical SOPs. They, they, they have informed my tactical SOPs and we can fight alike. Uh, and I think that's I think that's really important. That makes a lot of sense. It kind of takes us almost like full circle back to like, you know, with the riots, NTC, like, you know, federal deployment is that like we're trying to, to build a team early on that everyone knows how kind of like their strengths, weaknesses, quirks, the way they operate. So that way, whenever push comes to shove, it, it's time to employ them. Everybody's kind of on the same page. We all are, are like aligned. So that way we can uh, we can operate more effectively and don't and we don't have the. The, uh, the you know the friction and the fog of trying to understand each other while simultaneously trying to understand the battlefield. Yeah, and and none of us none of this is going to take away the authority of our adjutants general, right? So the eighty first is going to remain, you know, first and foremost, first and foremost, uh, a brigade that 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 works for and responds to the adjutant general of of the state of Washington, right? Uh, the third corps commander isn't going to have more say in that brigade than the adjutant general. We will never move away from that. I don't, I don't subscribe to that view. Uh, you know, the, the first, you know, and, and most important general officer in many of our uh, chains of command are the adjutant general. And that's always going to, it's always going to uh, remain there. Um, but, but I, you know, as we, as we, Climb our way out of the strength deficit that 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 we're currently in, and and we're look we're making really good progress there. We're not exactly where we want to be, but when you look at non prior uh, service enlistments this year, we're about twenty percent higher than last year. So that's trending in the right direction. Our retention has remained strong, uh, and so I think we've we've turned the curve a little bit, and we're gonna and then we're gonna start. Um, growing strength back. So, you know, again, you can't train a vacancy, you can't deploy a vacancy. Primary focus on strength. Uh, and then second focus is making that strength ready, personnel readiness, and then comes collective readiness uh, after, af after that. And so, uh, you know, I think we're, I think we're moving out of, of, of some of the, the, the worst readiness deficits that we've had in the Army Guard in a long time caused primarily to, you know, that period of time of 2020 through 2022 when when we were being asked and we did respond to such heavy lifting uh, here domestically. Uh, and so we got to, you know, that's what I'm asking all of our leadership uh, to do. When I talk to adjutants general, I talk to them about the importance of meeting our end strength mission this year of 325,000 to help us set up not just to meeting this year's end strength mission, but next year's and getting the guard back into uh, growth mode. Uh, and then working with the uh, Army senior leadership of not only missioning us to grow, but, but resourcing us to grow. Because uh, every conversation I've had with the Army, they still see us they still see the Army Guard needing to be at least 335,000 in order to, to meet the needs of the Army. Uh, and so we're committed to that. So that's that's where a lot of our focus is simultaneously of, okay, we've got formations. How do we prepare them for the, for the unknown? That makes a, a lot of sense, sir. Uh, so like a, if we're gonna be 
aligned underneath active duty components, remaining uh, like, you know, our formations to align with them. Um, how does their modernization efforts uh, impact us? And then for the for the listener, because we have like privates to listen to this, that like when they hear modernization, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. So could you define that and then kind of a- answer the question from your chair? Yeah. So, you know, let's let's just let's just talk about modernization as I'm bringing a new capability to the Army, an enhanced capability. So I'm either going to create a a a, a weapon system uh, that's new, that gives me a brand new capability, uh, or so let's take uh, 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 MPF. MPF is a is a you know in layman's terms a a light tank for infantry brigade combat teams that provides them some punching power in urban operations that capability currently doesn't exist in the army so mpf uh goes uh comes into the formation or we take existing capability let's take self-propelled howitzers uh, and we create enhanced capability. They become extended range cannon artillery or gay, right? So that's kind of what we're talking, talking about. Now, the assumption or the view, you know, many of us in the reserve component have, I believe is, you know, we believe the, the army just modernizes collectively at the same time in that first brigade of this division and second brigade of the same division, they modernize at the same time. And everybody's the same. It's only the reserve component who are caught in between different variants uh, and different capabilities. And, and that's really not true. The army is such a large institution. You can't just modernize the whole, you know, whether it's compo one active component, compo two, the national guard or compo three, the army reserve, you just can't modernize the whole thing at the same time. It will take, uh, take, uh, multiple iterations to modernize and right now we haven't really defined the end state of modernization other than we want to have greater capability uh than than that than what we believe is the pacing challenge out there is is china and we've kind of laid that out as it relates to 2030 and 2040 uh so so what we'll see is across the army uh, modernization taking place simultaneously across all three components of the army, uh, and that at any given time we'll have reserve component units that will be more modernized than their like uh, units on active duty, and and the same and then the other way as well. We'll have active component units that will be more modernized than their uh, reserve component uh, uh, like units. And so, you know, much like we went in the, you know, and, and General Sellers, you know, knows this because he's an old guy like I am, you know, when, when we started modernization of the army in the 1980s, that ultimately, you know, took us uh, to the to the first Gulf War, you know, they didn't happen in the course of a year. Uh, that took course uh, of, of multiple years uh, and, and, and really you know, the reserve component was part of that uh, as well. So we're going to see the same, same experience uh, here. It's going to be, I would say, you know, well, we know this, right? So the current end state with the current modernization effort is 2040. Not that we're going to stop in 24, but in terms of what we're trying to design and put on the battlefield today, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to look out to 24 or 2040. Very soon, the Army will expand that to a period of time beyond 2040, whether that's 2050, 2060, or some some other uh, period of time uh, there. Uh, that makes sense, and uh, it, I can kind of see that from my own uh, my own career's perspective. I came off of active duty, and uh, we had like kind of junky old M4s, but it, only the SDMs had, had like you know any kind of nice optics. And I showed up in my first uh, National Guard like, infantry battalion, and everybody had brand new M4s and brand new ACOGs and stuff. And it was just because the the way that that the modernization wave hit, it hit them way before my my active duty uh, unit did. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah, and if you think if and if you think in the in the aspect, right? Because I mean, you can't take uh, 
you know, relationships out of this, right? You know, we've talked a, a little bit about relationships, but relationships inside of the army are incredibly important uh, as well, right? And so as it relates to, you know, the relationship between the United States Army and the United States Congress, right? What they want, what, 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 what the HQDA wants to, wants Congress to understand is they're not leaving the reserve component behind that the reserve component is an integral part of the United States Army. And so this is how you get, this is how you get buy-in uh, with Congress as, as well. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I guess we would probably, uh, we would be more important to congressmen because we live in districts that, uh, that, that they're uh, paying attention to, right? Uh, Maybe but, not in every case, but I would say collectively, uh, uh, there's a strong argument for that. Right, right, it makes sense, sir. Well, I, I know we, uh, we're we're kind of pressed for time, uh, and I, I, there, my my favorite question to ask uh, anybody that, that's on, especially someone as accomplished as you, is uh, or what books have, have really made a lasting impact uh, on on you a, as a leader? Because it seems like everybody that that we talk to, there's like somewhere early in their career they're, they're like this this is the book like me as a as a chaplain like celebration of discipline as a, a young teenager really made a, an impact that i would later pass on to soldiers so what is that uh to you yeah so i you know i i get this question or a question like this similar or a similar question to this uh, a lot so the first thing that i that i always that i always try to explain from my perspective is you got to read stuff that interests you. Don't read stuff. Don't try to read stuff that you don't in, that doesn't interest you. It'll drive you away from reading. Uh, one and two, you know, it's very well going to be uh, a waste of time, right? So, like, I'll just give you an example. And I'm not criticizing this book. I'm just telling you about my personal interest. Like the book, "Who Moved the che Who Moved My Cheese?" That kind of stuff doesn't interest me. So I'm not going to go spend. Uh, money on a book that doesn't interest me. So I think as it relates to professional reading, number one, read what interests you. You can learn uh, applicable lessons to, to our profession, to our, our careers uh, in unconventional ways. And I'll give you an example of that in just a second. But the, I, I think the first book that really made a big influence uh, on, on, on me is a, is a book actually written in the, I think the late 1960s. I, I, I read a, a more recent edition, but I think the original book came out like 66, 67. Uh, and that's The Campaigns of Napoleon by uh, David Chandler. Uh, it's a huge book, it's a thousand pages long. It's one of those books, if you put it on your desk, you'll, you'll impress people because they, you know, it'll be like, oh my gosh. They, but for me, I, uh, I, I found it, a great read in part, you know, the campaigns of Napoleon, you know, he was just this military genius that ultimately, you know, goes up in flames because of a lot of reasons, uh, you know, his success, he, part of his later failures because of his earlier success. But, you know, but what's interesting about this is you had this military genius, right? And so when you look at land power in Europe, you had France and you had Prussia and Prussia came to this realization that, that, they very well would never be able to create the individual genius of Napoleon, but the way to counteract that individual genius of Napoleon was through collective genius, and they create the uh, Prussian Staff College, uh, where you know they become convinced you know a body of, of of twenty people that can think very well can outthink a body of one person. Uh, and so I think, though, you know, so I just I just found that book incredibly uh, entertaining one uh, made you think about a lot of uh, other things uh, as well. And, and I, you know, I will tell you that I kind of felt like it was a big boy book and that, you know, maybe I was you know, actually a true professional by uh, jumping on uh, on something that big. But but let me give you an example about unconventional reading. Right. Uh, so I like to ride motorcycles, and so I like to read about motorcycles. And uh, there's this uh, there's this uh, book out there. If you're from, and I also love music. And so while uh, so the band Rush, uh, it's a Canadian band. Guy named Neil Perch, their drummer. I'm not a huge Rush fan, uh, but I love music. 
uh, I love riding my motorcycle. Neil Peart is the drummer of Rush, and he wrote a series of travel books associated with his motorcycle travel. Well, um, then in the course of about 18 months, he experiences the, the, the tragic loss of his daughter in a car accident, and then the tragic loss of his wife to illness in about an 18-month uh, period of time. And he wrote a book called uh, Ghost Rider Travels, uh, Travels on the Healing Road or Traveler on the Healing Road, something like that, but Ghost Rider. And really what it is a book, it, what it's really about is a book of resiliency about how, the, you know, the, the, the two greatest losses that could ever occur to him, the loss of his, his wife and his daughter happened near simultaneously. And, and, and how can you recover from that? And, uh, you know, I just found it a, a great personal lesson on resiliency and one individual's approach to that and how he could have given up and, and, and he contemplates that question multiple times about giving up, uh, but he doesn't. Uh, and, and over the course of, I think it's, I think it's about 50,000 miles on his motorcycle that he travels over the course of time. He ultimately, while he never accepts the loss of his daughter and his wife, comes to grips with it and comes to grips with his new life uh, and, and so that's why I'm saying is, you know, and, and, and I think that's very helpful in our business when we're, when, you know, as, as an institution, we're, we're dealing uh, with young men and young women that may have issues with resiliency that may go through very difficult times, or we ourselves can go through different, uh, very difficult times. Uh, I think it helps give us a frame of reference. Uh, I think it, uh, I think it help can help us manage either ourselves through uh, a scenario like that or help lead people through uh, uh, traumatic loss. Uh, so yeah, those, that, those are those two books. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense, sir. We had a uh, we had Dr. Scott Gorman on, on the, the podcast and uh, I asked him the same question and he basically gave me the same answer. And I was I was like, I'm going to kind of antagonize him a little bit and keep on pressing. But he would not recommend a book. He was just like, I read for my own interest. I encourage you to read for yours and I encourage you to read broadly for that very reason. And uh, uh, is that like you never know what you're going to find whenever you, you take some weird book off the shelf that is on nobody's reading list. You might find something. And, and it kind of goes after, uh, you know, Book of Five Rings, Musashi is like once you see the way you, you once you know the way you see it in all things, it's, you know, truth is truth wherever you seem to find it. So it's interesting to, to, to see you uh, to double down on that for sure. Yeah, I think it's again, I think it's really important you read what interests you. Uh, that That's going to that's going to bring you to reading. That's going to keep you reading. If you're reading stuff you don't like, uh, you're going to shut that down. And and look, there's so many other things other than reading as well. I mean, here I am on a podcast, and my my goodness, the the military podcast environment uh, is just so rich right now uh, for you know an array of I mean an array of things. You can go to the Combined Arms Center at, at Fort Leavenworth and and listen to podcasts talk about doctrine. I mean, if that's how you're wired, you know, there's just so many, so many uh, avenues as it relates to, you know, just not professional development, because if we, we, you know, because we're concerned not just about professional development, but personal development, because if you, because if, if you're, if you're going down a path of personal development, development, you can't help but be professionally developed at the same time. Right, right. No, and the, uh... I'll double down on that just from doing a podcast. I mean, I get like unique opportunities to sit there and talk to people like you. And it's, it's, it's super awesome to be able to learn from that. And you start to see like different trends and leaders, different, th just like that with the, with the reading thing that like it. So I think the more that you put yourself out there and you consume a wide variety of media, be it that YouTube podcasts, whatever. Um, I, I think that like you can only, benefit from that in the long term both personally and uh, professionally so yeah I'd absolutely like uh, double down on that sir yeah and I think it's important that you know as you know as you said they're they're very well are going to be junior uh, members of the team that listen to the podcast it's very important that there's not one there's not one path to success right there are there there are a lot of paths to success uh, you have to find your own 
your own path. And as leaders, you know, what's really important is, is that we, you know, we value our soldiers, we value their experiences, we value their contributions uh, to the team. Uh, and that, you know, we, that, that we don't take our experience and believe that it's the only way to success and try to force it upon someone else. Uh, because I haven't, I, you know, you know, General Sellers, he and I, you know, we might have had some shared experiences somewhere down the path. We haven't lived each other's life. His path is his path. My path is my path. But if we lead professionally, if we lead positively, if we lead with a sense of, of respect and value to our soldiers, we can't help but create an environment where our young men and our, our, our young women of our, of our formations we can help them reach their full potential, which is, I think, truly what we do as leaders. My, my obligation as a leader is try to get you as far to your potential as possible. Now, it, that may not be being the director of the Army Guard or chief of staff of the Army or the Sergeant Major of the Army or the Command Sergeant Major of the Army National Guard. You may not have the potential to that, but you have potential. And so my obligation as a leader of the formation is lead you in a way that we can take you from wherever you are today to as close to your full potential as we can, because, because we all know this as individuals, we can't see our own potential. We are blind to that, right? It takes somebody, somebody else that identifies your potential and sees your, 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 your potential, because most of us, you know, if they, you know, I, but again, I'll pick on uh, BG sellers here, you know, 20 years ago, if they would have said, hey, Paul, you're going to be a Brigadier General someday, it'd be like, nah, no, nah, not, not really. I don't think that's going to happen because of this, because of that, whatever. And, and we put up these obstacles that, uh, you know, if it was left to us, uh, we'd never get where we're at uh, today. And, and that's very, very, very true of me. You know, I enlisted almost 41 years ago strictly for the college money. And I tell you, I was going to get out after six years. There was no way in the world I was going to stay past my six years. Uh, and, and, and here I am, you know, here I am now. And so uh, it, it, takes, it takes other people leading you in a positive way, in a professional way for all of us to reach our potential. Okay, sir, that hits home because I was in the same boat. Uh, but we're up on time, so I don't want to keep you uh, late. I'll give it over to uh, uh, General Sellers and see if he had any party words for us. Absolutely, sir. I really appreciate your time. Uh, a lot of great insight, some things that we're going to chew on within the state of Washington and especially within the brigade as it pertains to the readiness and that balance of readiness and modernization and how that's going to play out when you consider the, the high op tempo that we still have across the globe for the, for the Department of Defense. Um, so we'll be very interested to see how that plays out. Uh, but my, my pledge to you, sir, is that uh, within Washington, up in the Pacific Northwest, you're going to have fully manned equipped and ready, ready personnel to, to use as you need. Yeah. You know, you know, and I'm really excited for the 81st cause I know, you know, on the horizon, we have, we have new strikers uh, forecasted for them. So, you know, a new platform, you know, an enhanced version of what we have here. Uh, and uh, I just really appreciate, you know, if I just take one second, talk to the soldiers out there, you know, I just really appreciate, you know, their service, their sacrifice, their commitment to this. Be, be, being a traditional guardsman today in 2023 is so much harder than it was when I first enlisted in 1982. What we ask you to do, what we expect from you is so much uh, more complex and more demanding. Uh, and, and I just, you know, have the deepest respect uh, of all of our soldiers out there. And likewise, to, to our families and our employers that allow us to serve through their support, we're allowed to uh, you know, support our local communities, the state of Washington, this great state, or I'm sorry, this great nation, and, and quite frankly, the free world. When you look at what we have been doing uh, for a long, long time here out of the Army National Guard, it's, uh, it, it, it's incredibly uh, humbling to sit at top of the Army National Guard where you know, I get exposure to all of the 54 and just see the contribution that's made uh, to this country every single day uh, out of uh, our great formations and, and certainly the 81st and the Washington Army National Guard is part of that. So I just like chaplain to, to you, to General Sellers, just 
thanks for the opportunity to come and spend a little bit of time with you today. And to all the great soldiers out there, uh, you know, thanks so much for your service. And please uh, extend uh, my my regards uh, and my appreciation to your families as well. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I think it's a great place to end it. Thanks for being on, sir. Absolutely. Thanks, gentlemen. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.